0: for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. Hey, what's up, church? How are we doing? Hey, I just want to say this, because um, it's easy to do. Don't take for granted the fact that on a regular basis uh, we're baptizing people and seeing them go public with their faith, because um, that's not something to take for granted. It's, an ab- it's a big deal. And so I just want to acknowledge that. And another interesting thing, because we talk about this all the time, and we baptized at the 9 a.m. as well. But in all the stories today, almost all of them, one of the catalysts was somebody invited them. And because they were bold enough to invite them, not weird, but invite them, like, hey, you should just come check it out. You can't overestimate like what God does through that and the power of life change that can result. And I always say this to you, you have no idea what hangs in the balance. And so next week when we start For the City, um, it's an incredible time to invite somebody because one of the big obstacles to the church is that we don't always model Jesus, which we're gonna talk about. And this is our chance to go, we're gonna raise tens of thousands of dollars and give it all away to our community because this is what the Jesus movement is about. And so these next two weeks, great time to invite somebody. And then the end of this month, um, John referenced it earlier is a huge deal for us October 30th maybe it's not a big deal for you maybe you're offended that we're even doing anything and, and that's fine um, there's other great churches in the area but Halloween Spectacular I'm just kidding I don't know why I started like that <laughs> Halloween Spectacular with CC Kids is going to be amazing if you invite somebody um, and they're an adult, warn them if they don't want to come back here, don't invite their kids because they're going to want to come back. They're going to love it. Uh, Fall Fest is also that Sunday. We're just doing a lot of cool stuff. And it's just we, we want to make connection and community and this is a great place to do it. And I know some people can't get in person, but if you can, you got to be in the house. I mean, I think you guys see that today, that you cannot replicate what happens when the church gathers together. And so pretty incredible. So mark those two times next week in October 30th to invite somebody. And all of that kind of is in line with what we've been talking about in this series, Big Church. This is the fifth final week. And we talked about the fact that the church is a big deal. It's a big idea. It was actually Jesus' idea, but it comes with so much baggage. And I think the thing that I hate the most with what I do is to watch so many people almost feel forced into resisting the church for reasons or for things that the church should have resisted. Like, they shouldn't have never even been part of the church. Like, here's the thing about the church movement. Um, The only thing really, and I'm oversimplifying, that should cause people to walk away and go, I don't want any part of that. I'm not down with that, should be this one singular thing that they don't believe that Jesus is the son of God. Like, that really should be the thing. That's the epicenter of the church. And yet... Most people who resist or walked away from the church, which has been you, or you were coerced to being here today, or, or this seems different to you after a decade of being away from the church. Like, the, the thing that characterizes a lot of us in terms of our stories had nothing to do with we walked away because of Jesus. We walked away because of some horrible stories of abuse. We walked away because the church became the arm of a political party rather than repping Jesus. We, we left because it was judgmental or it was hypocritical or you got the invitation maybe non-verbally of get your crap together and come and you couldn't get it together and so you were just forced out. Um, or, or it just felt irrelevant to you and so you resisted and walked away. But come on, that was never what the church was about. That's not what Jesus launched. Like one of the things that hurts me like legitimately is when our communication team get messages all the time. I don't know if weekly basis is fair, but it's a lot. And it'll constantly be like, yeah, 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 I hear what your church is about. I have a friend invited me. I've heard a good thing. I see what's on your website. But here's my context and story and what I'm struggling with. And then they'll always say this, are you sure I'm welcome there? Like, are you sure it's safe? And we always talk about it. It bothers me every single time because that's the one question about the church that you shouldn't have to ask. And, in fact, this last week, and if you're here, I, I, hopefully you're fine with this, and I apologize in advance, but I met somebody at Chick-fil-A um, which seems like how every pastor should start uh, a story, but I was at Chick fil A, first time in a while. And, and I was there, and she's like, Hey, do you, you pastor at Center Point? I'm like, Yeah. And she's giving me my chicken sandwich. And she's like, I had some friends invite me last week, so this is just this week. And I came for the first time, and she real quick gave me the history of her, you know, the kind of her background. She's like, I just have never, I've never felt welcome in this, I've never felt safe. And we hear this so often. She's like, my friend's invited me. I came last week. And she's like, I gotta tell you, I've come one time and it just felt like what I had been searching for for so long. I felt so welcomed. I felt so safe. Which is such a, like that's you. That's the body of Christ. But I was like, the the thing that bothered me though is I'm like, that shouldn't be the exception. That should be the rule. Like if the church gets everything else wrong, that should be the one thing we get right. Lo, if nothing else, people are crazy. But at least I'm welcome there. At least it's safe. And here's the truth. When the church... Um, for a lot of you, the, when many of the things that you have resisted about the church are things that the church should have resisted. Like when Jesus showed up, what he offered or brought to planet Earth was different than ancient religion, different than world religion. And as we've talked about all throughout the series, it was a movement. It was a gathering of people. It was not a hierarchy. It was not a denomination. There was not a hundred hoops to jump through. It was all around one singular idea that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he proved that by in history. And if you're a skeptic, I'm so glad you're tuning in or you're in the house. This is the thing to investigate. Then he walked out of the grave alive and it validated everything he said about his life and about his message. And the church began to explode And move, and 3,000 were saved and baptized on the first day, which is why baptism is such a big deal. And several weeks later, 5,000 more were saved and baptized, began to follow Jesus, probably about 10% of Jerusalem. And the movement began to move, and it wasn't a Jewish movement, it wasn't nation-specific, it wasn't dependent on your background. It was multicultural, multinational, multiracial, multigenerational, socioeconomically diverse. It was a movement to the world, and Jesus made sure that we knew that. And when the church got started, that's what the church looked like. And then as we've seen in this series, in part because of a mistranslation, you can go back to week one, where in your Bible it shows up as church, which that really is a bad translation. It comes from a Latin, German term, ended up being transliterated as like a sacred place or location. That's not what the church was. The church was, the Greek word ekklesia, it was a movement, it was a gathering, it was an assembly, it was for the world. And suddenly... Not too many years in, this dynamic movement became exclusive again, and insider-focused, and ritualistic, and complicated, and in a lot of church history it became abusive, and destructive. And then around the fourth century, after the church was really rolling for a while, if I can just give you a little history, one of the things that set the church back the most, and we we're still trying to recover, we haven't recovered from this the fourth century. Christianity became the legal religion of Rome, and that was a terrible thing to happen because a persecuted minority became an empowered majority. And I said this last week, but I'm just going to say it again because this is so counterintuitive to our culture. When the church has been at the top with power and influence in any culture, the church has gone backward. The church is at its best as uncomfortable as it is for us. When it's at the bottom and creating change bottom up, when it's in marginalized in society, when it has no influence, no political standing, no money, nothing. When the church has been persecuted throughout the world in history, that's when the church has been most alive. We are not good with power. In fact, the empirical data right now in China and Africa is that if you want to know where the Jesus movement is exploding, that's where the Jesus movement is exploding. And so all of a sudden, when we got the power, this is what I put in my notes, we we became a majority and began exercising Old Covenant-led authority, like Old Covenant, Old Testament, the Old Way, which was inspired by God. But when Jesus showed up, there was an expiration date on all that. And that started to infiltrate our thinking as the Jesus movement, and the church became something other than what it was. Like I said, exclusive, complicated, ritualistic, in some cases destructive. And then we made some huge strides around the 16th century with what is called, and you may know some about this, the Reformation. And with the Reformation was this, this singular idea that was just huge, which was sola scriptura. And this was really bothersome to church leaders at the time who were all about power, because this took... Power away from the hierarchy and away from the church because, up until that point, if you controlled the building, you controlled the scriptures, and if you controlled the scriptures, you controlled the people. And Sola Scriptura was no, the scriptures should be in the hands of the average individual, which was a great thing, and the authority is with the scriptures, not church leaders, not a hierarchy, not a denomination. But the only downside to what was extraordinarily, uh, extraordinary otherwise with Sola Scriptura was this, is that it did put eventually the, the Bible in the hands of the common person, which was great. The only problem was they had no context for interpretation. They were not educated. And so a lot of the misinterpretation around the 16th century, where they took Old Covenant, Old Testament theology, and tried to merge it with the new Jesus movement in the church, and we're still trying to recover from it. Because here's what they didn't understand. And hear me close before you DM me or put something up that's not what I'm saying. The, church, the the Bible I believe personally, and you may not be there yet, and that's okay. I believe the Bible is inspired; that it's God's words that was preserved through history. The Bible is equally inspired; it is not equally applicable. And before you at me, here's why you know this is true: because when you're 14 year old boy was disrespectful and off the rails, you did not stone him to death. You wanted to, but you didn't, right? So it's all inspired. It all had a purpose. God used the Old Covenant, Old Testament system as a cocoon to birth the Messiah and, and to launch this new movement, but it's not equally applicable, and so they began to take the scriptures, not really knowing how to interpret them. And the one lens through which the, the scripture should have been interpreted, which was love God by loving other people, was kind of put on the shelf. And eventually over time, and it still follows us today, the Bible became a bat. The Bible became weaponized and love lost. And it's why many of you for a season walked away from the church. And the, at the heart of that was Old Covenant Old Testament thinking that they tried to merge with Jesus and it doesn't work. When Jesus showed up, he launched something brand new to the world. Unlike ancient religion, unlike world religion, all centered around Jesus is the Christ. He rose from the dead. And now the one ethic is I want you to interpret everything through loving God by loving other people around you. And when the church has embraced that... The church has moved forward, and in fact, the message of the gospel is almost irresistible because God has removed every obstacle to us having a relationship with him other than than our decision to say yes, and when the church gets this imperfectly, I'm telling you, the message of Jesus is hard to resist. The problem is many of you have never experienced that before. So here's what I want to do in this final message in in these few minutes is I want to talk about several things, seven specifically, that I think we need to redefine as the church. These aren't new things. This is just returning to what I think Jesus dreamt up and what Jesus launched. But specifically in our culture, these are seven things I think we need to redefine in order to line up with everything we talked about in these first four messages of this series. Now, there's probably 200 And this would look different depending on where you are at around the world, but I think these things are so central, and I think specifically in this cultural moment, the church has lost sight of some of this stuff. So here's the seven things that I think we need to redefine, and a lot of this is going to make more sense if you've been here through the whole series, but... You'll track with me, and if you get a chance to go back to any podcast catch or YouTube, you can watch the whole thing. But here are the seven things real quick. The first one is this, that we need to redefine, rethink, and many of you, as as 101 as this is, you haven't experienced it before, the Scripture and our interpretation of Scripture never competes with love. That's the first thing we need to make sure we redefine. Jesus was so clear. The entire law and the prophets hang on a single command. Love other people the way God has loved you. That's it. Even when you can't find a verse and you don't have a chapter, the driving ethic in question is, okay, what does love demand of me? The entire New Testament was commentary and application of that one singular command. Let, let me. I won't land too long here because I talk about this a lot, but let me give it to you more directly. If your theology, your view of God, your view of the Scriptures, if your theology gives you license to unlove Or mistreat somebody else Your theology is wrong And I just said this I think the scripture is the inspired word of God The scripture isn't the problem Our interpretation of the scripture is the problem And if we, and we see so much of this in our culture We somehow appease ourselves With a bible verse And a chapter that allows us to mistreat somebody And feel okay about it The bible is not the problem your theology is the problem. All you have to do is look at church history where we ripped verses out of context to support slavery, somehow believing that God was backing us. The scripture never competes with love. Can you imagine if the church just got that one thing right? What would happen, how, how different your story would be? Second thing that we need to redefine is this, that the church is such a big deal. is a body, it's not a kingdom. Pilate was with Jesus one time. Right there at the end, it's not like they hung out. That's how I made that sound. The Pilate and Jesus, they just hung out, and then they got crucified. They, it was right before the end. That was the only time they hung out, and they were talking. And it, You really couldn't call it hanging out. They are just having a conversation, and Pilate's deciding he's going to execute Jesus. And so there they are having a conversation, and Pilate basically is like, hey, you keep talking about you're a king, and you're ushering in this kingdom. When are you going to do that? When are you going to set up your throne? And this is my paraphrase, but Jesus is basically like, listen, my kingdom is not of this world, or you'd be crucified right now. That's not actually what he said, my paraphrase. But that was the idea. And then you come along, you look at the writings of Paul. And Paul, all throughout the New Testament, talked about the kingdom of God, which is this kingdom ethic. It's this way of viewing the world. It's this lifestyle. And eventually, that kingdom is going to be fully ushered in on the other side of of this life in eternity. But even now, we're ushering in that kingdom ethic, that way of life, that lens through which we view the world. But Paul talked about this kingdom of God while he planted ecclesias, the church. This body of Christ all over the Mediterranean rim, And he made clear that God Has a kingdom that he is ushering in And the church is not that kingdom The church is a body In fact here's how Paul said it writing to the Corinthian church now you By the way you 2000 years later Us you are the body of Christ And each one of you Is a part of it I love Paul's language in other places in the New Testament where he's like, listen, and in Corinthians, you, this is what he says. You are an indispensable part of the body of Christ in your community in this moment in time. That's crazy. Then in God's sovereignty is the other language he used. You have been strategically placed. It's not an accident where you are for a reason and you have a role to play. And here's the reality. If you are a follower of Jesus, when you are not engaged in the body of Christ, you are missing something. You have been created and designed for that. And it's my hunch. It's why in this culture we have so many bored Christians. Because we are trying to do an individualistic consumer faith that does not work. Jesus did not design us for it. In fact, he said, if you want to find where life is at, give your life away. And when you don't engage, you're missing something. And when you don't engage with the body of Christ, something is missing. Your strategic You're indispensable. You know there are, in some ways, in human terms, there's some needs only you can see because of your background. There's only there's some people and you only you can relate to within the body of Christ. There's some healing that, in some ways, are it's only going to come through you as a conduit of the power of God. Why in the world? Would we give in to this cultural thinking that I'm going to worship God alone by myself or at a screen? And I know some people can't help it. But why would I, if I can, replace that with engaging the body to change my city and change the world? The church is not a kingdom. There's no reserved parking spaces. There's no thrones. This isn't the nation of Israel. We're a body. So I just want to encourage you, engage. We need every CCR to be bold. As we talk about this series to invite And not in a weird way, not in the way that we have to distance ourselves, like, well, I'm not a part of that. I'm talking about within relationship, loving your neighbors, loving people where they ever believe what you believe, but go, you know what, God's doing something special. And just newsflash, God's doing something special through this gathering in our city. And so there should be some moments where you go, hey, you should just check this out, because God has the potential to change everything in your life. Have you ever invited, like in the last year, one single time? Be bold to invite Be bold to serve because God has given you a place within this movement and you need to own it. Like what I love is watching small group leaders baptize kids and they're not related. They just have had a profound impact on their life. You need to serve. You need to play your part well. You need to give. Because we're footing the bill for people that they can't do it on their own or won't because they're still investigating Jesus and we get the privilege to do that. We get the privilege of investing in the next generation. Like third graders do not give, ever sorrow in the bill for them. We invest a ton in the next generation because our return on investment is what God's doing to anchor the gospel in their hearts. And we're not just about you know intervention, which is a big part of what we do. We're about prevention. What if we can anchor the message of Jesus before they get to some of the trauma and the baggage that we have? That's what the church is about. Be bold to invite, be bold to serve, be bold to give financially because God's going to use it and we've been given the baton of the church in our generation. We need to make sure that we redefine that the church is a body, it's not a kingdom. And can you imagine? Let, I mean, in our city, in the United States, but let's just talk about us. If we just, if everybody, every Jesus follower did that, can you imagine what would happen in our families? Can you imagine what would happen in our communities? Can you imagine what would happen in our city? The third thing that we need to redefine is this, and some of you have been hurt deeply by the misunderstanding of this, is authority is to be exercised for the benefit of the led, not the leader's. I love Jesus in, the, in the, his life and recording the New Testament. He turned the leadership paradigm upside down. One day all of his guys are talking and they're talking about being great and, and they want leadership and they want power. It was a might made right culture. And if you had power, you were over, you lorded it over people, you got all the benefits, you got a fat expense account. I mean, that's what leadership was. And they're like, We want some of that. And Jesus hears them talking and turns to them and he says this, Jesus called them together, Matthew 20, 25, He said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord their authority over them and their high officials exercise authority over them? And his disciples are like, yeah, yeah, we know that. That's why we want it. We want to be an authority. We want to lead. We want to tell other people what to do. We want to get all the advantage of this because this is what we do in a Greco-Roman culture. Like, yes, Jesus, could we have some of that in your new kingdom? And then Jesus pauses, I think. and He's like, guys, eye contact. Peter, look at me. Guys, not So with you, not in my kingdom, not in my movement, not in my ecclesia. don't you dare think that if you've been given authority, that authority is for you. That's not how it works anymore. And then he said, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, literal Greek word courier, and whoever wants to be first... Needs to be your slave. Basically, if you want to have authority over, you need to learn how to ha- be an authority under. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And then in just in case they missed it, in the final hours before Jesus was betrayed and then crucified, they're there in an upper room apartment and they're having the Passover meal and Jesus takes off his robe. You've heard me talk about this. And this was strategic. It was not by accident. That's a sign of his rabbinical authority. He wanted, it wanted everybody to know, I'm taking this off and I'm letting you know I'm coming. I'm coming to you. I'm laying down my privilege, my authority, what I deserve. And then he goes around the table on his hands and knees and washes his disciples' disgusting feet. And he gets up and says to them, I don't want you to ever forget this moment. In fact, he said, I've set for you an example in John 13, 15. John recorded it that you should do as I've done for you. And I tell you the truth that no servant, that's us is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And guys, Jesus would say, if you ever find yourself with authority, with influence, and with power and leverage, mark my words, that authority and influence and privilege and power is not for the sake of you. It's for the sake of other people around you. And one of the things that has to be redefined in the church, and, and I could go on and on about this, is that authority is not for the sake of the lead, it's for the sake of or not for the sake of the leader, but for the sake of the led. And and here's the thing that I think about, just even within our church, what would happen in culture with those of you with influence if you led that way? Those of you who own companies, those of you who are bosses, those of you who are in education. I mean, I met with a guy this last week who's a part of our CC family, again, invited by somebody, talked about change, just changed his family. And we were talking about how following Jesus merges in the marketplace and he oversees about 60,000 employees around the country. There's so much influence just within our church. Can you imagine if every leader decided I'm gonna lead that way and when I find myself with authority and influence and privilege, I'm gonna find out how to leverage that for the benefit of other people. Can you imagine the reputation of the local church? It'd be like, I don't believe what those people believe. They're crazy, but I wanna work for one. I wanna hire them. That's what the Jesus movement should be all about. That's what authority in the Jesus economy is all about. And then the fourth thing, and I think this is maybe um, the greatest key within this cultural moment for us, something that we need to redefine. The church is not a political movement. To align the message and the movement of Jesus with a political party is a perversion of the message and the movement of Jesus. Could we be any clearer? Like, you shouldn't have a flag talking about a banner with Jesus next to a donkey or an elephant. Jesus doesn't need to be draped in an American flag. And listen, I'm not talking about as an individual citizen, you should vote, you should have a voice, you should care, you've been given incredible privileges, you love your country, all of that, while being really honest about where it falls short. That's what Jesus' followers should do. So you, you should do all those things. I'm talking about the corporate body of Christ, the church movement. Vote, engage, love your country, but do not associate Jesus as nation-specific Do not associate with Jesus with one political party. One day, all the Jesus followers from all over the world and every generation are going to be face-to-face with King Jesus. Every tribe, every language, every culture. And nobody's going to care about the citizenship of the nation that you are part of. They're going to care about your citizenship to the kingdom of heaven. That is the only thing that's going to outlast you. And I'm just going to go a little bit harder here, and I'll be done. The idea in Christian circles, specifically over the last two years in the West and in the United States, that, well, if you're a Christian, then you are going to fill in the blank. You're going to vote fill in the blank. Are you kidding me? Like, look at the New Testament. The justice issues that Jesus cared about, you relate them to modern-day culture, they're all over the place. You can find different pieces of those in about every movement. There is no political movement that Jesus is going to fit neatly inside of. And so you should have a voice and be involved, but please do not blur the lines to think that Jesus is aligning with one party. And over the last two years, I've gotten more than ever before, and I'm not the only one. Pastors all over the country. I'm a part of a network where we commiserate about this all the time. But over and over again, I would get, hey, I'd get messages, you need to take a stand, you need to take a stand, you need to take a stand. And I would think this in my head, and then sometimes I would type it. But my response would be, all you mean by that translation is, you want me to take your stand, I don't know if you know this, I'm not a pastor to just Republicans or just Democrats or just Libertarians or just Independents. I'm a pastor of people who need the grace and the love of Jesus and to align ourselves with one political party and alienate half the population is a disgrace and it is a perversion of the message of Jesus in our generation and we need to stop it. And I'll just tell you, if you look at the statistics right now, it'll bring you to tears because one of the greatest things over the last specifically five to ten years that has people leaving the church in droves and not coming back is this issue right here. And we need to redefine that. Listen, and be involved, love your country, do whatever you want to do, but just recognize that that is secondary and it's not even close to your allegiance to Jesus. i got to move on, but this one quote from uh, Andy Stanley that I love, he said, when we allow our faith to be subjugated to our political party of choice, we lose our voice as the conscience of our nation. And I think that's happened. And we need to change that. The fifth thing that we need to look at, and this maybe is not as intuitive and it's kind of like, I don't feel like it fits in with the rest of it does. Over this last year, without getting specific, I never do that from stage or calling anybody out. But There's been movements and, not movements, but issues in mainline denominations where there has been decades-long abuse that is horrific beyond what you can imagine. And a lot of it centers around this misplaced theology. Number five, the thing we need to redefine is marriage is characterized by mutual care and submission, not male domination. And that made it seem like a no-brainer. It's not a no-brainer. And some of you have been hurt so deeply by a misunderstanding of Jesus' teaching, and a verse or two ripped way out of context, I cannot over-exaggerate for you when Jesus began teaching about marriage. I cannot, I cannot overestimate the emotion behind that talk in a, in a culture where women were a commodity, where women were property. One day, Jesus is approached by, by some guys, and they're like, hey, and again, some of this will sound offensive. This is their language in the first century. Like, hey, what do we do if we want to get rid of our wife? Like, we're just not feeling anymore. Like, could you give us a three-step process of how that's done? And they didn't even think anything about it. It wasn't offensive to them because women were property. Women were commodities. didn't even matter. And Jesus is like, you don't want to know. And then Jesus goes on to teach about marriage, remarriage, divorce, and the value of women. And when he gets done, if there were any questions about how extreme Jesus' teaching was, all you have to do is listen to how Jesus' listeners responded. And that, I don't have time to go through it, so I'm just going to tell you the response. And this will give you a little picture about how culture-shaping and world-shaking this was to elevate the status of women, because this was the response after Jesus answered the men about the women. The disciples said, Matthew 19:10, If this is a situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. <laughs> and Jesus is like, then you heard me. Because at the end of his talk, men lost all of their advantage. And Jesus in that culture replaced ownership with partnership. And I'm telling you, study this on your own. This is the thing I love talking about the most. Sometime I'm, I'm gonna do a whole message on this. You, you study what Jesus brought to the first century. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty firm on this. Jesus Elevated the status of women that has shaped Western culture in ways that no other figure even came close to. For some of you, as women, despite what you've experienced from the church, you should follow Jesus for that reason alone. Jesus changed everything. And then Paul comes along and he talks to Gentiles about marriage and he says this, Ephesians 5:21, submit, same Greek word that we love to cherry pick out of another verse and take out of context. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Marriage is basically this, and it permeates into other facets of society. What did God do for me, and how can I do that for them? Amen. Marriage is a submission competition. How do I put your needs above mine? How do I sacrifice for you? How do I make you more important? How do I make your thing better than my thing? And that's not intuitive, but it is the way of Jesus. And it's why Jesus said, you're never going to choose this on your own. But I'm just telling you, the way to find the life that you're after is to give up your life for the sake of other people. And when you find that in a marriage, as odd as that may seem to you, when you get two people who take Jesus seriously and begin to defer to one another, I'm telling you, it is extraordinary. It is powerful. It is culture shaping. But let's not be confused. Marriage is not about male domination. It's about mutual submission. Jesus changed the game, and we're still trying to catch up. Spirituality. I just got two more. I'm going to land this plane. But you need to hear this. Spirituality is determined by how well one loves, not how much one knows. This is all over the New Testament. I love what it says in Galatians, where it talks about this is what spirituality looks like. This is what being mature looks like, but the fruit of the spirit is this: insight, knowledge, understanding the deeper things of faith and the ability to make people hang under every word. It's not the verse. Spirituality isn't even limited to you being able to read. I hate definition of spirituality that only work in the educated West or in developed areas around the world. You know, there's a lot of spiritual people in huts that can't write. In fact, some of the godliest people that you have ever met may be the people who knew the least. And I'm not advocating that we shouldn't grow in understanding the scriptures and theology. In fact, we're making a huge emphasis on that as a church. John, um, who was up here earlier, that's a huge part of his role. And we've done so much over this this next year, of people getting in classes around subjects and into groups and into community and helping with different issues and understanding the scriptures and all of those things. So, I'm advocating all of that. But my point is, it's a journey for everybody. And one of the things that has hurt the church the most is putting people in leadership positions because they have theology degrees, but they've never loved anybody around them. And the most spiritual person you're ever going to meet is the person that loves a lot. This is what Galatians actually says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what it looks like. And the invitation is pretty profound for all of us because you can begin to step into those things with the power of Jesus and the knowledge of his love before you know a whole lot of theology. And what I love about those two is they're horizontal, not vertical. It's not just, hey God, are we good? God, are we good? No, no, no. Are the people to your right and left good? That'll tell you how spiritual you are. What I love about them as well is is they're sacrificial, they're cross-cultural, and they're unnatural. Never be fooled by a man who knows a lot but does not love a lot. The most spiritual person you may know, and I have really good experience with this because uh, in my mind and thinking, my mom was a spiritual giant. Probably the quietest person you'd ever meet. The godliest person you may know is the person that you've never even heard from. But that's God's economy. And spirituality is determined by how you love, not how much you know. Information has never been a catalyst for transformation in the movement of Jesus. And then the seventh thing that we need to redefine is holiness is about being a part of rather than setting yourself apart from. And let me explain this because there's some Old Testament, Old Covenant theology. That, like, the literal meaning talks about being set apart, so I understand that. But I'm talking about in terms practically how we live this out. What we've been called to do is to be different and live different in the middle of the mess. And now in the Jesus movement, holiness is not about creating weird Christian subcultures, which is what some of you grew up with. It's not about, like, how can we distance ourselves from all of the world and all of culture. It's not what we've been called to do. It's not huddling up in our, our little thing. And here's why we think this way. Because the Old Testament, Old Covenant thinking, sacred was equated with separate. And if you were going to be sacred and spiritual, you had to be apart from. In the Jesus movement, when Jesus showed up, sacred was actually engagement. But here's why we misunderstand. And I'm telling you, if you trace this back, this is Old Covenant, Old Testament thinking that was great. It had a purpose, but it had an expiration date when Jesus showed up. The reason we think this is because in a moment in time, Jesus came to the nation of Israel. And he said, you're going to be my chosen people. And through you, I'm going to birth the Messiah. And I'm going to show off through you what it's like to have a relationship with God. And so for this segment of time in this generation or these generations, you're going to be holy by being separate and being apart from that's what holiness, that's what sacredness is. And then <laughs> the Jews, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, birthed the Messiah. And Jesus showed up and everything changed. And he redefined what the practical application of holiness looked like. And John, who knew Jesus well, came along and said it this way, that the word became flesh and made its dwelling among Us, are you getting that? Like Jesus condescended into human flesh. Jesus decided, I'm not going to stay separate unlike every other world religion. I'm going to enter in and I'm gonna touch unholy things and unholy people. It's why it should be no surprise for us. when he said, I want you to do the same thing in his final words before he peaced out after his death and resurrection was this. Matthew 28, 19, therefore, I want you to go. I want you to be bold, stop huddling up. I want you to go and make disciples or followers of Jesus of all nations, all ethnic groups, people who are not like you. And then, and we always miss this, this last phrase, this is conditional. Not that God or Jesus is not going to be with you, but this is a promise to the church. When you make Jesus the center, when you are bold to go and not be insider focused, and when you make an emphasis on multi ethnic, multicultural, multiracial, multigenerational, because that was actually to be the litmus test of whether you understand the gospel when you do all of those things. Surely I'm gonna be with you always. With your gatherings, you're gonna watch, you're gonna watch and experience a movement of God like you've never seen to the very end of the age. And then Luke records in his gospel that Jesus dies on a cross. And the curtain of the Holy of Holies in the temple was split from the top to the bottom. And it was this signifier and this indicator that God had left the temple. And no longer was there a Holy of Holies where God was unapproachable. God had come to the people and now he left the temple to inhabit portable temples which is you who've been called to go into culture and into the world and rep Jesus and so now holy is getting into the middle of the messiness holy is moving toward dysfunction holy is getting dirty holy is being uncomfortable and the most holy people that you are ever going to meet are the people who have dirty hands getting involved in the dysfunction and the uncomfortability and the changing diapers right now and CC kids and going all in waist deep in all kinds of craziness because that's what your savior did for you. And that's where we need to redefine holiness. You're the temple of God. God's in you. You've been called to go. go. And, And this is the thing I say all the time. Don't ever trust a church who is too pretty. If everybody's always amazing, that's a red flag. If it never feels real, nobody's ever struggling with their kids, Guys never have a porn addiction. Nobody's ever struggling in their marriage. Nobody ever has substance abuse problems. Their kid didn't melt down on the way here. Everybody's got beautiful stick figures on the back of their minivan with massive Bibles. All those are great, and you can have all those things. But if that's all you ever experience, I think it's a church that's off mission that'll die in two decades. Don't ever trust a church that's too pretty. When you start to wade in and it's uncomfortable and people drop language you've never heard in a church hallway and there's dysfunction and you're a little bit nervous, I think that's the epicenter of where God is moving in the church. That's what holiness looks like. And last thing, never confuse giftedness with holiness. That's the big problem in the church. They throw people on stage and strap microphones to their, their faces because they can project their voices or they have a turn of phrase or they know some theology. Giftedness is not holiness. The holiest man in history, let's just come back to the holiest man in history died covered in blood, saliva, and your sin. That's what holiness looks like in the Jesus movement. Can you imagine if we got that right? Can you imagine if the church, the church The United States, the church in our area, Centerpoint Church, if we all engage and we got that right, because I think a movement characterized like that is powerful. God did not stop what he promised to do at Pentecost. God is still moving. We get just a little glimpse today of what God is doing to change and to transform lives. And man, if we embrace this, I'm telling you, the gospel is almost irresistible. Let's be that kind of church. Let's engage that kind of way. If everybody said, no, 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 this is not about the scripture competing with love. We're gonna love and we're gonna go to our community. This is not male domination. This is mutual submission. This is not about holiness that's set apart from and condescending to all the people we need to help our projects. No, no, we're all on the equal plane and we all need Jesus. What if we did that? What if we stopped treating this like a kingdom with kings and recognized it's a body and we got messy and started moving to our city and community and caring about it? What would God do through us? At the end of Acts, which is the book we've been looking at this whole series, in the final couple verses, Paul's been in house arrest in Rome, and he's been shackled for two years, and he's waiting for basically orders about what's gonna happen to him, and he just is waiting and waiting. He sends word to Jewish religious leaders in Rome and ask them to come visit him, and they do. And they show up to Paul, and they basically, the first thing they say is, well, what's up with this knockoff religious cult that you're leading? Because that's all they knew it as. And Paul, being Paul, starts to preach the gospel. The good news of Jesus, what God's done, rose from the dead, like you, this is the answer to all human religion. It's much less complicated than what you're working with. And everybody's invited in. You should, you should give it another look. And they weren't hearing it. Nobody was getting it. And I just want you to think about this. There's Paul in house arrest knowing it's probably not gonna end well and he's preaching his heart out and nobody's listening Nobody, none, of, none of the religious leaders are getting it and he has no idea fully what the future looks like and he like the movement started strong at Pentecost but it doesn't seem to be going anywhere at this point and they got no money and no influence and no authority and no leverage and yet Paul writes these final words of the 30 year history of the church after the resurrection and Luke records them and here's what Paul says and you just have to stop and ask how in the world did he know? Therefore I want you to know that God's salvation this is Paul to the religious leaders and under house arrest salvation has been sent to the Gentiles meaning it's for all people if you weren't tracking and they're going to listen. Basically, Paul's going, God came to you as Jewish people, and he got, you got first run on this, and you've rejected it. and so now this message is going to go to the world. And I'm just telling you, it's hard to believe it's going to go to every nation, every language, every culture, in every generation. And here we are. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him, and no surprise, boldly when your leader comes back to the dead you're bold bold and without hindrance he preached the kingdom of God this new ethic, new way of life and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ but he never saw to fruition all that God was going to do and one morning they led him out of house arrest shortly after this and outside of the city gates and probably with the sun just coming up they executed the greatest spokesman that the church had ever known to wash their hands of this new movement and move on but they silenced the greatest spokesman the church had ever known but not the church because Jesus promised with all the crap and the crusades and inquisitions and the junk that you've had to put up with and the way the church has operated in ways that's embarrassing there is always going to be a remnant in every generation that's going to hold true to what Jesus ultimately launched and he promised not the gates of death hell or the grave are going to be able to stop my church. And now we have been invited to play a part. Would you guys stand with me? And all over the room, would you just bow your heads, close your eyes, and we're going to dismiss you in just a second. We're a tad over, but there's a lot of baptism, so I'm not apologizing. With nobody looking around, just it, this may be weird to you, but just out of respect for people and in this moment, and I just want to give this one invitation. I'm going to give it quick, because if the Spirit of God's working, I don't need to do anything else but just like first service, some of you have been attending this whole series or today and you haven't had all your questions answered, but there's something in you that like the 3,000 on opening day of the church would say, it's, it's real, it's legit. I believe Jesus is who he said he is. And you can just pray this prayer after me in your own heart and mind. And it's not a prayer that saves you. You don't even have to use any words. It's just a declaration of your heart in Jesus. But just pray this after me as, as your own just way of expressing this to say, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you lived the life that I couldn't live. You died on the cross for my sin. And three days later, you rose again. And Right now, I'm trusting you to save me and to forgive me. And with nobody looking around, if this is your moment, because I just, I want to... I just want to kind of identify with what Jesus has been doing for 2,000 years and what he's doing in this moment and what he's been doing throughout this day. Would you just lift up your hand real quick? Usher's going to put a card in your hand. You don't have to do anything with that, but if you want to, take it to the Info Center. We'd love to give you some more information about this journey. But just real quick, up, give me 10 seconds. Nobody looking around to good, this is the moment I place my faith and my trust in Jesus. Jesus, thank you for what you're doing in this place and these people do your thing. And I pray that you would allow us to just step into what you've called us to be as the church as part of this movement. And we pray this in Jesus' incredible name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways?